Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Greg Bluestein. Greg is a political reporter and author who covers the governor's office and Georgia politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He is an MSNBC and NBC News contributor and the author of a fantastic book, Flipped, about Georgia's epic 2020 election. Greg, we were just talking before, you are the only guest that we have asked back three times on Passing Judgment. We're so happy you're here. Thank you for coming on, and I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm so honored to have this rare, the three-peat, I love it. We will send the medal and trophy, and right now, obviously, we asked you back because there was just a big election in Georgia. And let's begin at the very beginning for all of the listeners just a few days ago, there was a Senate runoff in Georgia. This might have felt kind of strange to people because the midterm elections are over. But could you begin by telling us why was there a runoff and who were the candidates? Yeah, we were sort of the leftovers for Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> we're, we're the last battle of the 2022 election. And there's a runoff because Georgia has a law that dates back essentially generations in different iterations that requires a candidate who is running for a statewide office to win by a majority of the vote. And that means when there's multiple candidates on the ballot and it's a very close election, that means that several of our recent big-time elections have gone into this overtime period called the runoff. In Georgia, it used to be a nine-week period. We have a new law that shortened it to a four-week period. So instead of this marathon we had in 2021, when John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock won those two runoffs to flip the U.S. Senate, we had more of a sprint now. And in this race, it was, again, it was Senator Warnock who uh, won a special election about two years ago to fill the final two years of the late Johnny Isaacson's term in the U.S. Senate. Now he was running for a full six-year term. He was up against Herschel Walker, a Republican first-time candidate, but well-known in Georgia because he was one of the most legendary football stars in the state of Georgia's history. Name recognition out the window. I mean, everyone in Georgia seems to know who Herschel Walker is long before he ran for this office, but he didn't live in Georgia. He lived in Texas, was not involved in politics really at all in, in Georgia, but ran as this uh, first-time contender with Donald Trump's endorsement, with Mitch McConnell's endorsement, and eventually with the full backing of the state Republican Party. And you mentioned the Georgia law and why there was a runoff. There were some big legal battles before this election. I'm following them, but I don't know that everybody did. Could you talk to us a little bit about maybe the biggest legal challenges leading up to the election and with a focus, I think, properly on the early voting issue. Yeah. I mean, first, the runoff system was basically created way back when to keep white candidates in power. And so there's been legal challenges against the runoff rules uh, over the years, but essentially it was created back in the segregation era to make sure that white contenders who were all Democrats, Democrats ran the state back then, the white contenders wouldn't split the vote and leave it open for a black candidate who consolidated the African-American vote to win. So that's the sort of root of the system. Of course, it's evolved since then. There have been legal battles against the runoff system as well that really have gone nowhere. But in Georgia, uh, last year, Republican lawmakers passed something called Senate Bill 202 that rewrote Georgia's election laws. And it instantly came under all sorts of legal scrutiny, legal challenges from Stacey Abrams' group it's called Fair Fight Action that challenged other voting rights advocates, also challenged the law. 
different practices, different provisions in the law, because the law was multifaceted. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, it shortened the runoff period from nine weeks to four weeks. Most politicians, most advocates were okay with that because it was it's, it's so grueling and no other state had a runoff period that long. But what that also did was it shortened the early voting window as well. And that's led to some some issues, including a question over whether or not Saturday voting would be allowed in Georgia about 10 days before the election. Republicans challenged it because they said that the few larger Democratic-controlled counties that were allowing Saturday voting were running afoul of a very obscure provision in the law that banned weekend voting within two days of a state holiday. And the state holiday in this case was the day after Thanksgiving is now known as simply state holiday, but it used to be known as Robert E. Lee's birthday. So it's freighted with all sorts of controversy right there. And Democrats said, you're not allowing folks to vote on a Saturday because of Robert E. Lee's holiday. Secretary of State's office, Brad Raffensperger, he initially challenged those counties, tried to restrict them from holding votes because he, in their argument, that it would favor just some of the bigger counties and that the law needed to be followed. The state appeals courts rejected that challenge. Brad Raffensperger said, okay, I'll back off, let the ruling go forward. But then in came the state Republican Party the National Republican Party, and the National Republican Senatorial Committee, they all challenged that law. It was a tremendous backfire in my estimation. The state Supreme Court, all nine justices unanimously rejected that challenge, that appeal. Uh, and by the way, you know, for your listeners, this is not some liberal hotbed in Georgia, the state Supreme Court. Four of its members were appointed by the former governor, Nathan Deal, who's a Republican. Four other members were, were appointed by Governor Brian Kemp, and the ninth member was elected. So definitely very conservative court. And really what we saw then was an epic backfire. Democrats surged to the polls. Senator Warnock used that as a staple of his stump speech, telling voters everywhere he went that Republicans tried to stop you from voting. Don't let them do it. And you know there was a kernel of truth there. Right? He was not exaggerating in that case. And so that kicked off a wave of early voting more than 1.8 million people voted early, far more than voted on election day. And Senator Warnock built a very big cushion during that process. That's absolutely fascinating. I did not understand that the runoff was part of a system to try and bake in racism. I did not know the intricacies of that. And for me, that was so helpful to get more than just the kind of top of the line. Republicans want to stop early voting. Democrats want to increase early voting. Um, as you said, the judges who made this decision, I think it's so important for people to know, these were not, quote unquote, liberal activist mm -hmm. judges. These were judges, I think, centrists, conservatives, and some liberals. But it's really helpful legal background. I I think a lot of people are now wondering something that you wrote about just a few days ago, which one of your pieces was analysis, how Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker. And I know it's difficult to put this into a few minutes, but one of the things you mentioned was the backfire, the miscalculation when it came to these voting restrictions. But what are the top issues that you think contributed to this win and to making Georgia truly a battleground state? Well, first, Herschel Walker was a deeply flawed candidate. As many of your listeners know, he had a history of lying about his biography, lying and exaggerating about his business record, his academic experience, violent history, you know, abuse of his ex-wife and other women, 
allegations that he never really fully addressed on the campaign trail. He kept on saying, I wrote a book about it, but his book did not include any of that history. Baffling statements, erratic behavior, and then near the end of the general election campaign, accusations from two women who were his ex-girlfriends who accused him of pressuring them into getting an abortion, um, which is one thing, but then take it a step further. This is a candidate who had called for an outright ban on all abortions, even in the case of incest, rape, or when the life of the woman is at stake. So this served to undermine his credibility throughout the campaign. So even in the last four weeks of the campaign where Herschel Walker really needed to run an error-free bid right there, he went missing from the campaign trail for five days, holding only private events. Republicans were baffled. Governor Brian Kemp was flabbergasted that Republicans were trying to block Saturday voting. He and other Republicans were saying we should take advantage of it not try to restrict it because that just plays into the democratic attacks. And then at a time he could ill afford it, Herschel Walker would go off on the tangent on campaign trails, talking about werewolves and vampires. In the end, just using Herschel Walker's own ads against him were his own words against him were some of the most effective democratic attack ads. But you can't just talk about how Herschel Walker lost. You have to talk about how Senator Warnock won. And that's the other piece of this puzzle. He had to run a disciplined, measured, shrewd campaign. And that's what he did. He talked more about bipartisanship than he did about working with Joe Biden. That wasn't because he's some enemy of Joe Biden. He voted with Joe Biden more than 90% of the time, but that's because Joe Biden's approval rating in Georgia is 40%. And so he knew that if this race was a referendum on Joe Biden, he would lose. But if this race was a referendum on Herschel Walker, then he can win that race. And so he tried to make this a contrast between him and Herschel Walker, not about national issues, but about character and competence in his words. And throughout the entire campaign, especially the runoff, he talked about character and competence. And what he was doing was trying to give those middle of the road voters safe harbor. He knew he had already consolidated the Democratic base, but he was worried that those Democratic voters alone couldn't put him over the top. He needed to win what we call Kemp-Warnock voters. Those are voters in the midterm who split their ticket between Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, and Senator Warnock. And 200,000 or so more voters back Kemp than Herschel Walker. So we knew that was a sizable population. Had Herschel Walker done you know, just marginally better with those voters in the midterm, he would have won this race outright. But because he couldn't, and because he couldn't effectively reach out to those voters in the runoff either, that gave Senator Warnock a giant opening that he took. And he ended up winning a significant number of those swing voters. There's no way for us to really barrel down on the numbers exactly because, you know, there's no, um, they don't declare themselves swing voters when they go to vote. But what we do know is in areas where those swing voters tend to live, like the North Atlanta suburbs, Senator Warnock far outperformed his midterm totals. And in some of the areas even outperformed Governor Kemp's totals. So uh, a very big sign for him. And at the same time, Herschel Walker, you know, he tried to drive up turnout in Republican leaning areas and he did in some of those, but it just wasn't enough. Now I'm going to ask you what's not quite the inverse of how did Warnock win, but how did Walker, given what you just told us about him as a candidate and all the weaknesses and all the weaknesses that I perceived as somebody who was following it from the outside, from pretty far away, mm-hmm. how was it actually this close? And I think a lot of people will listen and think that is an ignorant or naive question, but I completely understand thinking I want a Republican in that seat. 
But I'm not sure I understand thinking I want Herschel Walker in that seat. Again, given all the accusations of not just hypocrisy and domestic violence, but also given his apparent incompetence when it came to knowing the issues. Is it in your perception that people really wanted to fill that seat with somebody who was going to be a reliable Republican vote and that was it? Or was there more to it here? Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, look, I tried to frame that question early on in the runoff cycle, right after the midterm was the, you know, because I was getting that question all the time. It's not a naive question. It's a perfectly valid question is how could someone like Herschel Walker be running so close to Senator Warnock? And the way I frame it is the other way is how could Senator Warnock be still in the ball game, be right. still in the running at a brutal election cycle for Republicans in Georgia? Because, you know, we talk about the national red wave that really was just a trickle. Well, it was a red wave here in Georgia. Every other Republican candidate for office, statewide office in Georgia, won big. Uh, not just one or two points, but Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by about seven points. That's essentially a landslide in a state as tightly competitive as Georgia. And every other statewide contender also won big. The last Democrat standing was Senator Raphael Warnock. And part of it's because of his strategy. Part of it's because of Herschel Walker's vulnerabilities. Had Senator Warnock run a more traditional campaign moving to the left and kind of echoing Stacey Abrams' strategy and the other Democrats' strategy, he probably, there would not have been a runoff. We wouldn't be talking about Senator Warnock's re-election today, in my, in my view. So he had to claim the center in a way that other Democrats couldn't to get here. But look, there's the Republican side of the equation. And you're right, there's a lot of those, I, I kind of tend to see it three different blocks of voters. There's one block of voters that's going to vote Republican no matter what. It's a huge chunk of voters, your baseline Republican voters. All these allegations, all these issues, they say, oh, it's fake news. It's not real. It's not a concern of theirs or that he's redeemed himself. That was a, a big message from Herschel Walker on the campaign trail that he has been reborn, that he found a religious awakening and that he's redeemed himself. And then there was a second block of voters, still probably a big number of Republicans who knew he had all these issues, who didn't think he was redeemed, who knew he was a terribly flawed candidate, but who still wanted to vote for him because a vote for Herschel Walker was a reliable Republican vote for the U.S. Senate, especially leading up to the midterm when we didn't know if Senate control would be on the line. They wanted to vote for Herschel Walker because they knew that it would be one vote closer to a GOP-controlled Senate. And then there was that third block of voters, a smaller group, but still consequential, that were reliable Republican voters, but were definitely having second thoughts about Herschel Walker, who were really affected by the ads, by the rhetoric, by his inability to answer any questions about where he stood on issues who seemed confused about the difference between the House and the Senate near the end of the campaign, just gave baffling answers the few times he would go to sit down for an interview. And when we asked him questions, you know, even questions that would benefit his campaign, he could not answer them, uh, would not or could not answer them. And even in the final hours of the campaign, the final days of the campaign, after Donald Trump showed up with a white supremacist, racist, anti-Semite, and other Republicans, including Governor Kemp, roundly condemned that meeting, Herschel Walker was silent. And I think that lack of specificity, but also just the lack of being able to say where he stood on any of these significant issues really undermined his election efforts as well. But but I do think your listeners have to keep in mind that you know a lot of Republicans weren't blindly supporting him. They knew he had major issues, but a vote for Herschel Walker meant a vote for a GOP-controlled Senate, and it meant a reliable Republican vote in Congress. 
Right. And you wrote about this very recently, a piece called Republicans Pile on Trump for Herschel Walker's Loss. And you just mentioned the former president showing up. And I'm wondering now that the election is over, how much are Republicans trying to point fingers at each other, blame each other? And I know that you talked about this already a little bit, but how much do you think this says about the length of the former president's coattails in battleground states? So there's a lot of finger pointing at Donald Trump, but I don't know if that's completely fair. And this is not to exonerate the former president, but look, Herschel Walker wasn't some random, you know, obscure Republican official plucked out of nowhere by Donald Trump because of his loyalty to the president and suddenly became this you know, high-profile figure. And we've seen that in so many other states where Donald Trump endorsed someone who is sort of a, a second-tier candidate and they then become the Republican nominee. Herschel Walker could have won the Republican primary, in my view, without Donald Trump's endorsement, without Mitch McConnell's endorsement. He was in Georgia, in a place like Georgia, where even non-football fans grew up hearing stories of Herschel Walker, he had something that no one else can buy, which is almost universal name recognition. And that went a long way. That being said, Donald Trump you know, endorsed him early, called him unstoppable. That helped freeze the field. Republican elected officials who had records of public service backed out of the race as it appeared that Herschel Walker would run, and not because they didn't think they could be better candidates than Her- Herschel Walker, just because they thought there was no way they could win against a, a living sports legend like Herschel Walker. So Donald Trump didn't do much for Herschel Walker in the home stretch of the race. He didn't have a rally in Georgia during the general election phase or the runoff phase. He didn't send Herschel Walker all sorts of huge gobs of money. He didn't hold fundraisers for him during that period that we know of. And the one time he sent out a few emails about him and he had a a tele-rally for Herschel Walker. But I know there's a lot of finger pointing at Donald Trump, but this was also Herschel Walker's loss. (laughs) This was Herschel Walker's inability to run a, you know, and he still almost won. And this is not for lack of trying for his campaign operatives, but he could not move to the middle. He could not reach out to those wavering Republicans and give them a reason to vote for him. And I think that's where it all boils down to. I think what you just said, Greg, and he still almost won, that's the part of the story that will still be remarkable to me. And I know that you explained it and you explained it really well and clearly. And I just still can't get past the idea that you would choose to elect somebody for higher office who appears to have, again, I'm just going to use the word competency, no competence when it comes to what you actually do in that position. Um, Again, we're talking to Greg Bluestein. He's a political reporter and author who covers the governor's office and Georgia politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's author of Flipped, a book on Georgia's epic 2020 election. And many of you have seen him regularly on MSNBC and NBC, where he is a contributor. And Greg, we've been focusing, I think for good reason, on the Walker-Warnock election. But as we're finishing up our conversation, I also wanted to talk to you about another race that you mentioned, which is Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. And there seems to me a lot of differences, obviously, between that election. And I know you wrote a piece recently where I think the title was Abrams' aide says Democrat had, quote, nearly impossible chance to beat Kemp. Could you talk to us a little bit about why her chances, given all of, I think, 
for a lot of us, all of the really appealing things about her um, were almost none. Yeah, I mean, she faced an uphill battle. But remember, when she got in the race in December of 2021, it was a very different picture. Brian Kemp, the incumbent Republican, she had lost him by less than two percentage points, by 1.4 percentage points. It was a very close race. And at the time, Brian Kemp was being booed at Republican gatherings all around Georgia because of Donald Trump's opposition to him. David Perdue, the former U.S. senator, just was about to announce his own primary challenge against Governor Kemp. So Governor Kemp looked like a very weak incumbent. Even his allies were giving him a 50-50 shot of winning the Republican nomination, let alone beating Stacey Abrams, who many saw as a juggernaut because of her high name recognition, because of her fundraising capabilities, because of her national network of support, you name it. You know, she, she came in this race with a lot of advantages. But there's disadvantages too, because even as her profile soared, she became the top enemy to a lot of state Republicans and even to a lot of national Republicans. She she became this sort of vilified figure, so it drove her negative ratings up. She also suffered because during the Republican primary, Governor Kemp actually used it to his advantage. He, in defeating David Perdue, consolidated Republican support and ended the primary with a 52-point victory over David Perdue. And polls right after the show, he had 95% of Republican support. So there wasn't this wavering group of Republican MAGA, you know, pro-Trump voters who were still on the sidelines about Governor Kemp, like a lot of Democrats and, and frankly others thought there would be. He had consolidated the base. And so that allowed him to go to the middle. That allowed him to reach out to the same independent swing voters that Raphael Warnock won with. He reached out to those voters, too, on an economic argument over and over again. He talked about how he lifted economic restrictions early in the pandemic that proved to be very, very unpopular in Georgia and around the, around the nation, these restrictions. He was one of the first governors in the, in the country to start rolling back those restrictions. And that was the sort of foundation of his economic argument. He was able to use a $6 billion plus record surplus in Georgia to fund priorities, to give pay raises to teachers, public employees, law enforcement officials, basically to spread the cash around uh, and win headlines, win favorable coverage, and also undercut any of Stacey Abrams' arguments that she would also give pay raises and do these things to public employees. And he also had a record. And not everyone loved his record. Not, not all of his voters loved his record, right? He, he, he signed into law one of those nation's strictest anti-abortion laws. He signed into law a, a vast gun expansion. He signed into law all sorts of educational overhauls that many, many Democratic voters opposed. But at the same time, he also signed into law tax rebates, tax refunds, suspension of gas tax, those pay raises I mentioned earlier. So he had dozens and dozens of policy items that he could invoke to different crowds around the state and basically to tell audiences that he was doing what he could in Georgia to fight Joe Biden's economic policy that led to a generational high inflation. And if there was a message that won over the middle, that was probably it. Greg, I have to tell you, that was such a helpful for me explanation of what was going on and what describes the difference between these two races. Because I think people tend to see in the Senate race, a Democrat won. In the gubernatorial race, a Republican one. What's going on in Georgia? And obviously there's so much nuance and you're on the ground and you're reporting it regularly. And I think that probably brings us to the next question, which is not how do we square those two outcomes? Because I think you've explained that, but 
What do we see in Georgia, you think, in the next two years, four years, six years? Is this a state that is purple turning blue, or is it a state that is purple maybe going up and back for the short and midterm? That's such a good question because I think that Senator Warnock's victory clinches the fact that Georgia continues to be a, a premier battleground. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look at Joe Biden. Um, just the other day, he nominated Georgia. He pushed for Georgia to be near the top of the uh, presidential nominating primary schedule for 2024, increasing Georgia's importance in the presidential uh, race in 2024. Uh, the, the Atlanta might be the home of the Democratic National Convention in 2024 as well. It's one of the two finalists in, to many advisors between Atlanta and Chicago. And we now have two national bona fide national figures from both parties who could run federally in, in the not so distant future. Of course, one is Brian Kemp, who's emerged as the, uh, this candidate who beat not only Stacey Abrams, but also Donald Trump in, the, uh, in, the, in this past election cycle. And the other is Senator Warnock who won in one of the most competitive states, if not the most competitive state in the nation. And he won twice in the last two years. He was on the ballot five times since November, 2020. And he was the top finisher in each of those contests. So if you're looking for a Democrat who can win in a battleground state, <laughs> Senator Warnock's resume looks pretty appealing to you right now. So so I could, I could see him being talked about as a presidential contender or vice presidential contender down the line as well. So I think Georgia continues to be in the white hot, red hot center of the spotlight. And I don't think my job is going to get any less uh, less crazy over the few, next few years. Uh, Greg, I was just going to say all of that means that you're going to be even more sought after over the next few years because we're all going to be looking at Georgia, not just for the Senate, not just for the gubernatorial elections and the other state elections, but also obviously when it comes to the Electoral College. And I think that you helped explain what the implications are really well. So, Greg, I know that you have something to go to, and we are very lucky that we got this time with you. I again want to remind the listeners we've been talking to Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Please, if you haven't, pick up his book, Flipped. You can, of course, see him on MSNBC and NBC. For our listeners, please continue to subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me across all social media right now at Levinson Jessica, and we wish everybody a great day. Thank you.